Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on May 20th, 2021, at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome Austin Bedetti. Austin Bedetti is an alumnus of the Fulbright U.S. Student Program from 2019-2020 academic year and an independent researcher specializing in the culture, politics, and history of the Middle East. He graduated from Boston College in 2018 with a bachelor's degree in Islamic studies and now lives in Rabat, Morocco, where he writes about current events in the region and his love of French tacos. In this podcast, Austin is discussing his research project entitled Ibn Rushd, Ecotheology and Morocco's Environmental Policy. Austin, welcome to the legation. Uh, we're very happy that you're here because uh, we just turned 200 years old on Monday, so your podcast will be the first podcast that we've recorded uh, since our bicentennial. And uh, we think your your research theme is is completely appropriate for, for this first podcast. But could you begin perhaps by explaining the term ecotheology? What does it mean and how does it apply um, to Morocco? Uh, sure, and thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Unfortunately, I couldn't be here when the legation was founded, but I'm happy to be here for the anniversary. As far as eco-theology, I don't think the term is very common or widely known, but the concept is becoming more widespread. And it's largely looking at the environmental movement and environmental protection from a religious or theological perspective. And more specifically, it's this idea that because God created the world and put humanity in charge of it, it's human's responsibility to care for what God created. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that the concept of uh, ecotheology is particularly relevant in the case of Morocco? I think in both North Africa and the Muslim world more generally, Morocco has emphasized its goals of both meeting its sustainability development goals and caring for the natural environment in a way that hasn't been quite as common even in a lot of the western world and as part of that morocco has started looking for inspiration for the environmental movement within its own culture and more specifically within islam really that's great um, one example of that from 2016 is the Green Mosques program, which Morocco started both to install solar panels on mosques, so you have that very direct symbolism of religion and environment, but a lesser known aspect of the program was also to train Moroccan religious leaders to find evidence or support for environmentalism within religious texts like the Quran and also works by Moroccan authors. Which is a central element. Exactly. Uh, solar panels are a little outside my area of expertise, <laughs> but religion and environmentalism is something I'm more uh, familiar with. That's great. Now, what do you think distinguishes ecotheology within the Muslim context from similar beliefs or movements within Christianity or Judaism or other world religions? I would say the 
biggest component is the legal one. And I certainly don't claim to be an expert on Christianity or Judaism, but I would say that Islamic law is much more expansive and covers many more areas than you would find in the other Abrahamic religions. And one of those areas is environmental issues. Even before the concept of environmental protection and climate change became widespread over the last century, you had examples of Islamic law dealing with conservation and animal rights and other issues that have become very important in a contemporary context, which is why I think it makes it useful to look back at what does Islamic law say about these issues that are developing now, but have been addressed in one way or another in the Muslim world for quite some time. And water rights from the beginning as well, how conservation of water. Exactly. That's another way eco-theology is very relevant to Morocco. There's been a big issue with water scarcity here, particularly in the agricultural sector. So finding ways to address that issue, especially beyond the scientific realm, I think is making the concept of eco-theology much more relevant in the present day. Okay. Now, Austin, you're specifically interested in Ibn Rushd and the, the writings of Ibn Rushd. How do his writings relate to eco-theology? Why him in particular? Why is he your focus in particular? I would say because he covered a lot of different areas. So he's known more widely in the Western world as Averroes. And I'd say in Western universities, he's most famous for his contributions to modern philosophy, both in the Muslim world and in Western philosophy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he was also an expert jurist and wrote one of the most famous texts on Islamic law, Bidayat al-Mushtahid wa Nahayat al-Muqtasid, which my terrible Arabic accent notwithstanding, that's largely translated to the Distinguished Jurist Primer. And it covers a range of issues from divorce and inheritance under Islamic law to just war theory. But the parts that I was interested in were ones related to environmental protection and Islamic law. And what makes this book interesting is even though Ibn Rushd belonged to the Maliki school of Islamic law, the book covers all four main areas of Islamic law within Sunni Islam. So it can be applied to a range of contexts and countries, not just Morocco. Are there unique elements or aspects of the Maliki legal school itself that are connected directly to Ibn Rushd or that he supported in particular? I would say the most interesting one that he also touches on uh, in the Distinguished Primer is this concept of setting aside a particular area of land for conservation. Now, back in the 12th century or the Middle Ages when Ibn Rushd was around, the concept of conservation, environmental protection as we know it now, mm -hmm. wasn't especially well-developed. But what a lot of Maliki jurists have tried to do now is draw on the concept of the waqf or the hima, which is the Arabic term for this area of land that's set aside. It's usually translated as a charitable trust, but it can also be used in the sense of setting aside an area of land for its own protection and for safeguarding. This is one of the concepts that Ibn Rush touches on in the Distinguished Jurist Primer and explores 
both in the Maliki context, but is also something that can be applied to other Muslim-majority countries and other Islamic legal schools. Would it have been like agricultural land or forest land or any type of land that when you're talking about setting aside property and things? Exactly. So I think it can be any type of land, but it's specifically saying this land won't be put aside for human use or widespread development. Really? So it's land that is not for humans. It's somehow another category. Exactly. That's fascinating. So this is kind of putting things together into ecotheology. Could you just sort of imagine examples of how that might be happening today in the Muslim world where land might be protected for ecological reasons or specifically in Morocco? I think the biggest equivalent nowadays would be something along the lines of national parks or preventing deforestation and saying this area, for example, is part of Morocco's national heritage or it's important to keep around for environmental protection. Therefore, we won't allow industrial development there and we'll instead have this be a place where animals can go without fear of losing their habitat or turning it into a tourist area instead, something that will have less great of an environmental toll. I've heard about the creation of green belts in Rabat. We're hopeful that there's going to be a green belt in Tangier as well. And I'm just curious if the justifications for these kinds of setting aside land in urban areas might be partially justified by these legal structures and legal systems. I think that's an area where ecotheology and Islamic law can be very helpful. A lot of these projects have environmental or scientific or economic justifications, but adding something along the lines of saying this is also a religious obligation or a moral obligation, I think will strengthen those kinds of projects, especially by saying this will raise however many dollars of revenue is something that's very abstract and right. not something that the average person can relate to. But if you frame it in a more religious or social context and say, we're just doing an act of good, that is able to bolster those kinds of projects, like you mentioned, the green belts. Yeah, I just wonder too if it might help in the sense of educating the conduct of humans who visit those zones, as in don't start fires, giving guests in those forests or in those areas guidelines about how they should behave when they visit the areas. Exactly. Or even maybe like destroying, I don't know anything about the Moroccan example, but in examples of other countries where forests have been destroyed for agricultural or industrial purposes, do you see that sort of going to the limitations of ecotheology? Do you see those kinds of issues and the use of the Islamic jurist theory as a helpful part of a dialogue about how one perhaps limits industrial development or expansion of agricultural zones and things like that? Yes, I think it can definitely be part of that conversation. There are Quranic verses, for example, that emphasize preventing pollution or making sure you don't overuse natural resources. They're rarely very direct, like saying, don't dump this in a river, in the sense that a lot of the modern issues with pollution and environmental degradation didn't exist when these texts first came about, mm -hmm. or they weren't widely known. But through, it's usually called analogical reasoning, you can say something along the lines of because Muhammad emphasized preserving water or something along those lines, 
it can be extrapolated that other natural resources should also be conserved, and therefore it goes against Islam to overuse them. By emphasizing those sorts of analogies, you can make an argument that environmental protection is both an individual obligation, but also a wider obligation of the society or the state. And you mentioned that if the word pollution per se isn't the word that's being used, could you give some examples of what type of pollution or behavior that would be polluting the environment were cited? in Islamic uh, teachings? Typically, it's been examples of either not overusing water, for example, either for washing yourself before a prayer or for watering your fields, which is then applied to say, well, for industrial purposes, we also should not overuse water. Along the same lines with pollution, I believe the Quranic verse says something along the lines of humans should not corrupt the earth. Now, that's a very abstract concept, uh -huh. but it's also very easy to say, well, pollution is corrupting the earth. I don't think that's something that would be viewed positively from a religious perspective and certainly not from an environmental perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you see any limitations to uh, use of ecotheological theory in terms of policymaking and uh, educating and making outreach to communities about that. What do you see as both opportunities and what do you see as possible elements that could be hindrances or limiting? As far as opportunities, I would say it's that ecotheology is something with widespread appeal. In a lot of countries, in the United States in particular, the environmental movement is seen as a kind of partisan issue. Um, depending on which party you're a part of or where you sit on the political spectrum, that is going to inform how you view climate change and environmental issues. Mm -hmm. That has not been the case in the Muslim world. You have both very liberal academics and the supreme leader of Iran emphasizing that environmental protection is a religious obligation. So regardless of whether someone's liberal or conservative, eco-theology is potentially something that could appeal to them. At the same time, up to this point, eco-theology has been largely rhetorical. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is great, or Islam says we should do this but I haven't seen a lot of examples of it being translated into action, both daily life and at the policy level, where I'd say Indonesia is the Muslim-majority country that's been most aggressive in citing and applying eco-theology. There have even been state-funded schools and councils there that teach or emphasize eco-theology, really? but at the same time, I would say aspects of Indonesia's environmental record have been lacking. And that's something that can be applied to a range of other countries that have expressed interest in eco-theology or even supported it. So there's the ongoing question of like, yes, eco-theology as a concept is great, but how can it actually be used to inspire people and create some kind of action on the ground? That's fascinating. Nice to think that we could be learning from other countries about how they approach the theme as well. I think it's a great opportunity. I'd not known much at all about it before. I always ask the question to our guests about your research methodology approach. I imagine that you have to be dealing with uh, writings and the texts, but uh, how do you combine the research you're doing into texts with the research you're doing into policies or implications and outcomes of policies? Within the context of Islamic law, I've usually found it's most helpful to start with the particular concept, like the hima or conservation of land, first to look into what Muslim jurists have written about it, 
both medieval jurists like Ibn Rushd, but also contemporary Moroccan scholars, and extrapolate from that what are the modern difficulties both in Morocco and in other countries that apply Islamic law in some capacity that these legal theories can be used to address. Well, that's great. We're going to wrap it up now. But before we wrap it up, um, I would just point out that within the last month or so, the government of Morocco, uh, the Mohammed VI Foundation, has announced that they want to green the museums of Morocco. So we here at the American Legation, I am pushing, and I hope that I can persuade the powers that be who own this building to also green our own building. And then the last thing is I understand you're going to be traveling, but then returning to Morocco to continue your research, and we'd like to invite you back. We've got connections with Abdelmelik Saad University here in Tangier and Tetouan. They have both religious faculties, so perhaps we could arrange for you to speak with some of the theology students. The new president of Abdelmelik Saad University, I'm told, is an environmental scientist, so perhaps we could also try to organize a separate talk where you could talk to the engineering and science students about your research and separately then to the theology and religion students. So you have an open invitation to return. Oh, I'd love that. And one thing I'd like to emphasize is as a non-Muslim and still an aspiring scholar, one of the most helpful things I found in Morocco is talking to people who are actually Muslim scholars who can point me more in the right direction of scholars, not only like Ibn Rushd, but also others who have written on these issues so that I can expand on the research I've already done. Well, we'll try to help you with that too. I'm looking forward to it. Right. And thank you again for having thank me. Thank you. Alif Shokarwa. Safe travels and thank safe you. return. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean.